From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, we speak with veteran journalist Ray Suarez about the testimony by former FBI Director James Comey before the Senate Intelligence Committee. After that discussion, Dr. Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institute joins me to talk about his recent article discussing President Trump's foreign policy successes. That's coming up on The Public Morality. public morality. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Warner, members of the committee, thank you for inviting me here to testify today. I've submitted my statement for the record, and I'm not going to repeat it here this morning. I thought I would just offer some very brief introductory remarks, and then I would welcome your questions. When I was appointed FBI Director in 2013, I understood that I served at the pleasure of the President. Even though I was appointed to a 10-year term, which Congress created in order to underscore the importance of the FBI being outside of politics and independent, I understood that I could be fired by a president for any reason or for no reason at all. And on May the 9th, when I learned that I had been fired, for that reason, I immediately came home as a private citizen. But then the explanations, the shifting explanations, confused me and increasingly concerned me. They confused me because the President and I had had multiple conversations about my job, both before and after he took office. And he had repeatedly told me I was doing a great job and he hoped I would stay. And I had repeatedly assured him that I did intend to stay and serve out the remaining six years of my term. He told me repeatedly that he had talked to lots of people about me, including our current Attorney General, and had learned that I was doing a great job and that I was extremely well-liked by the FBI workforce. So it confused me when I saw on television the president saying that he actually fired me because of the Russia investigation and learned again from the media that he was telling privately other parties that my firing had relieved great pressure on the Russia investigation. I was also confused by the initial explanation that was offered publicly that I was fired because of the decisions I had made during the election year. That didn't make sense to me for a whole bunch of reasons, including the time and all the water that had gone under the bridge since those hard decisions that had to be made. That didn't make any sense to me. And although the law required no reason at all to fire an FBI director, the administration then chose to defame me and, more importantly, the FBI by saying that the organization was in disarray that it was poorly led, that the workforce had lost confidence in its leader. Those were lies, plain and simple. And I am so sorry that the FBI workforce had to hear them, and I'm so sorry that the American people were told them. That was a portion of the introductory remarks by former FBI Director James Comey before the Senate Intelligence Committee held last week. Joining me to discuss Comey's testimony and its ramifications I'm honored to once again be joined by veteran journalist Ray Suarez. Ray Suarez, welcome to The Public Morality. Byron, good to be back with you. Thank you. Uh, In your years as a journalist, do you recall any administration off to this type of start in its first six months? Never. And in the modern relationship between president and press, uh, there's never been a president who sees the press in this way and also is so removed from the traditions, the evolved traditions that govern that relationship. Uh, Would you also just comment on, uh, because, you know, we've gotten so reflexive and and bifurcated in our thoughts about the press. Why is this relationship 
harmful to the overall body politic to President Trump's relationship to the press? Well, if you proceed from the belief, as I do, that because the presidency is a public trust and because the president, the person of the president, can have such tremendous impact on the daily lives of the people of the country and of the world, that uh, we really need to know what that person is up to, why they want to do the things they want to do, and what impact it's having. If you proceed from that assumption, then uh, it is just, it's, it's not just a good idea. It's not just a positive suggestion or a nice option. The president has a duty to let the country understand what he's proposing, what he wants to do, how it's working, and when things are not working, what they propose to do about it. That's the basics of the relationship. Now, the the question now is, do we have a president who really believes that? Do we have a president who believes that the press exists for more than simply burnishing his name value burnishing his reputation, and praising him. He likes praise. Who doesn't? Byron, you like praise? I love it. I like praise. (laughs) I'll go on the record. I like when people say nice things about me. (laughs) But I also know that, uh, that sometimes when I do something that displeases people, certainly in my professional life, if they feel like I've gotten something wrong or I have created an incorrect impression or reported incorrectly, I know that that's going to uh, hurt my reputation unless I square it, unless I admit that maybe I didn't get something exactly right, talk to my listeners, viewers, readers about what I did and why I did it, whether it's the right thing or not. There has to be communication. There has to be transparency. And look, if I'm just little nobody me and that's the case, when you go up to the level of the chief executive of the country – I'm sorry. Those are just the basics in the relationship. Uh, recently, after uh, uh, former FBI Director uh, James Comey's testimony, the president uh, suggested he was uh, completely vindicated by Comey's testimony. Uh, was he, in your view? Well, look, um, I think if they think that this is over, um, they're gravely mistaken. We'll see what happens. Part of that is working the ref, Uh, you know, (laughs) deciding that uh, you want to be vindicated. So just saying you're vindicated, and if it convinces enough members of the public that you are vindicated, then that served its purposes. This thing was not stopped in its tracks, and it never was going to be by the Comey hearing. People who love Donald Trump and people who don't like Donald Trump both were putting too much emphasis on one day worth of hearings. It was never going to be the beginning of the end, as Donald Trump's detractors would have it, nor was it going to be the kind of clean slate that his defenders had hoped. It was going to be one, you know, admittedly important, admittedly high profile, but one episode in a very, very long story that has a lot of chapters still to play out. I don't want to make this interview sound like two old guys talking about the good old days, but but we've reached this point where how people felt about the Comey hearing sort of ran a parallel track about how one felt about the president and one doesn't feel about the president. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we have higher expectations that, that sort of go beyond party? Sure. Those expectations extend to our business and what the public has a right to expect and demand from our business. But it also has um, some responsibilities to place on the shoulders of the public. If you go around searching for confirmation of the things you already believe, if that's how you create your picture, your working picture of the world, you're going to be disappointed a lot (laughs) because the world is not conspiring to make you happy. And uh, if the only impressions you take away from the Comey hearing are ones that confirm your already held views, you're going to be making a mistake. And uh, yes, the public has a right to demand 
an honest, straightforward, smart, thorough accounting of events from its news business. But, you know, I, I think it's legitimate for us to ask of our viewers, listen, listeners, and readers that they work hard, too, that they meet us halfway, that they do the work of being a citizen, which also, in this case, involves understanding what the Constitution calls for, understanding what the president can and can't do, understanding what's okay and what's not okay in situations like this. Yeah, you know, one of the things uh, that I was really struck by, uh, and I, I would I would say that um, I've been an avid follower of politics since I was ten, and my brother and I got into a fight on a Saturday morning because he wanted to watch cartoons and I wanted to watch the Watergate hearings. That shows you what kind of kid I was. But but within five minutes of Comey's testimony, sworn testimony under oath, he referred to the president of the United States as a liar. I mean, that just struck me. And for people who already sat down in front of the television, prepared not to believe Jim Comey, that moment passed with very little impact. For people who were already prepared to believe the worst of Donald Trump, that was the, the, the now we've got him moment. Um, I, I, the, the thing that was most remarkable to me is that one of the nation's chief law enforcement officers, well, now fired, but still a person of some reputation and experience, under oath before the United States Senate, said that he had absolutely no doubt that Russia worked hard and long to affect the outcome of the 2016 election. Then he reiterated it and said there's absolutely no fuzz on this, that not, that not only did they try to do it, but they burrowed into our system and that they're going to try it again this isn't the end of the story. And that moment, in the very early minutes of the Comey testimony, seemed to pass without, a, without anybody saying, oh, well, gosh, we better talk about that. <laughs> we ought to ask you some more questions about that. That moment passed, and they went back at the Trump-Comey moment instead of saying, holy, this is a hair-on-fire moment. Why aren't we talking about this? To me, that was one of the most incredible moments of the hours of testimony that the former director of the FBI, now that he has considered and seen everything that he has considered and seen, says he has absolutely no doubt that the Russians attempted to influence the outcome of the presidential election. Now, granted, he didn't say they did affect the outcome. He didn't say they were successful in an, in an attempt to change the outcome. So let's not oversell what he said. But if you're the president of the United States, maybe you ought to think the next time you're called upon to say something about Russia and just merely dismiss it as a bunch of baloney out of this defensive reflex that you can't allow a conversation about Russia. Now, let's let's remember that this is the same Russia whose foreign minister was at the Oval Office in recent weeks, and the President of the United States was joking with the Russian foreign minister about firing the FBI director and calling the FBI director you've just fired a nut job to one of the senior officials of a country that your intelligence community thinks tries to influence the outcome of the election. We're in such remarkable territory that it's hard to define it without shouting. <laughs> it's hard to define it without running around the room with your hands up in the air. But, 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 it is amazing. But right to your last, but to your to your last point. Um, this was largely summarized by the Speaker of the House then saying, and I'm, par I'm paraphrasing it right now, well, he's new to the job. Uh, I don't know, Ray. How do you square that? I mean, <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's true. He is new to the job, and, and he has made rookie mistakes that someone who had spent more time in public life 
and less time in private business might not have made. Being a boss uh, is very demanding, and being a boss demands certain kind of care and tactical savvy. But doing it in the private world and doing it in the public world are two different kinds of responsibilities. But now he's got the most important elected job on the planet. And you can make rookie mistakes only so long. I don't know. Uh, can, can, uh, it'll be pretty exhausting to go through three and a half more years like the last three and a half months. <laughs> you know, Ray, you're you're talking about things. It would be like me giving a lecture uh, on um, how central blocking and tackling is to football. I mean, these are the kind of mistakes that that are being made that, 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 that you're just totally unaware, and and that the FBI director, I'm mean, not the FBI director, excuse me, the Attorney General and the Chief of Staff would leave the President in the room with the FBI director. I mean. Is everybody asleep? I mean, you can't make those types of mistakes. Yes, but I think from everything that the president has said publicly, everything people who have worked with him have said about their private interactions with him, uh, he still is running the White House like the owner of a business who gets to make all his own calls and is the ultimate decision-maker. Yes, Donald Trump is the chief executive of the United States, and invested with tremendous power, both informally, in the way we actually practice having a president day-to-day, and formally, in the duties spelled out by the Constitution. So on both tracks, tremendously powerful man. But a man also who is going to first try, and I think this has been illustrated abundantly, He's first going to try to do everything the way he wants to do it before trying to do it the way presidents usually do it. And so that's that's where we're at. We have a president who wants to not conform to the uh, tendencies and traditions, even of the recent past, of having that job versus being a president who's going to shape the job by his own druthers. Some Americans are going to like that. They're going to love the idea that he's an iconoclast and shakes things up. Uh, but if it's not effective, if it's not shown to be effective, if it doesn't get the things accomplished that he was sent to the Oval Office to accomplish, then I think people are going to get tired of that. And certainly his uh, approval ratings sagging practically since the inauguration um, shows that certain people who might have thought this was a good idea at the beginning are starting to bail out a little bit. Um, You know, he wants to shape the office. I think that's given how hard anybody works to become president, I think that's an understandable impulse. How successful he'll be in reshaping the presidency in his own image remains to be seen. I guess that's what we're witnessing now. You know, Ray, in your experience as a journalist, and I'm not asking you whether or not Donald Trump obstructed justice. I mean, that that will play out in in its own time. But uh, could you speak to the the power of the Oval Office. Like when you're when you're someone walking to the Oval Office, just the power of that office and how persuasive that that environment can be. Yeah, I think there's been a little bit of disingenuousness on the part of the president's defenders when they note that Comey only said that the president hoped that he would back off on Michael Flynn. Um when you are in the presence of the president and he tells you about something that's in your line of responsibility that he hopes for a specific outcome, that's not like um, saying, I hope it's not going to rain today. Or I hope the Giants got a last place. A, <laughs> you know, I, I hope they have pastrami on the menu today in the, in the White House <laughs> lunch mess. Um, no, that's that's something quite different. And anybody who's ever had a boss, not even at 
at quite this exalted level. If you've ever had a boss who says, I hope this happens, that's not, you know, some airy, speculative thing. And I think Comey spent some time on uh, in, under oath trying to explain what that meant to him. And, you know, this is someone with considerable high-level experience in the top reaches of government. So he wouldn't um, undermine his own reputation by making it sound like he's a silly, sway-in-the-wind, uh, highly impressionable person. He said, basically, when the president tells you he hopes something happens, he's telling you he wants that thing to happen. I don't think uh, that's, that's such a, uh, an arcane or exotic <laughs> concept. <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with veteran journalist Ray Suarez, and we're talking about the recent uh, testimony of former FBI Director James Comey before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, Ray, in your experience as a journalist, um, how do you define a leak? A leak? Yeah. To me... And when I've been the recipient of leaks and when I've reported on leaked material is when something takes someone in public employment at some level, takes a document that has been produced by that public agency that they work for and gives the contents to a reporter because it's the only way to make that material public. Leakers have a vast range of motivations from things that they see uh, unquestionably in the public interest to wanting to get back at their boss, to wanting cr to create uh, a hullabaloo or a scandal. There's, there's motivations that are all over the map, but it usually involves either proprietary information that an employee of a company uh, takes and gives to someone outside the company in an unauthorized way, or someone in public life who takes information that is being kept secret by a public entity and gives that uh, to someone who will make that information public. One person that it doesn't cover in my use of the term and in the way people that I've worked with use the term is a private individual giving their own testimony about a, an encounter they had with a third party. Um, the way that I've used leak and heard leak and employed the word leak in stories um, hasn't covered James Comey's own account of his conversation uh, with the president. Whether he can be charged... You know, a lot of this is is really based on interpretation of statute. It's not a hard and fast thing. Whether a prosecutor takes it up or an investigator takes it up or a grand jury takes it up, this is all part of interpretation. So, in, in fact, there, there may be people who might interpret Comey's own written, contemporaneous written impressions of a conversation he had with the president as a leak because the document takes on some official um, cast, takes on some official form once the head of the FBI writes it down in a diary or an email. But the way that I've conventionally defined and understood leak, uh, I don't think someone who's been fired by an agency taking a non-agency document, something that he himself wrote, uh, counts as a leak. When you watch the uh, the Comey hearings, um, b besides you know the obvious tete a tete between uh, the president and, and the FBI director, former FBI director, uh, was there anyone in your view that uh, was shown to be in a negative light, based at least on Comey's account of events? Well, I think by Comey's account of events, um, certainly the Attorney General. Uh, might have some uncomfortable moments. And I think the fact that he is uh, talking about uh, testifying himself uh, shows that uh, he feels that he's 
in an uncomfortable light, has an uncomfortable spotlight shown on his own behavior. So getting Jeff Sessions' side of the story uh, has been made more imperative, I guess, in the view of the Trump administration by Comey's testimony. Finally, since, since there were a number of items that uh, Comey stated could only be answered in closed session, uh, the conversation that we're having right now, and as well as everyone else in the chattering class is having to some degree, it more likely is only the part of the iceberg that's visible to the eye. There's, I'm assuming there's a lot underneath this. Oh, you bet. I mean, just the fact that we know that some of the information that's been circulating in news accounts and in questions on Capitol Hill about the behavior of the president and his associates comes from intercepts um, makes this a very, very touchy area. Uh, it's it's likely that the uh, the information that the former director discussed in closed session had to do with some of the ways they accidentally found out that people were talking Russians because America's intelligence agencies routinely try to listen to what Russians are saying. And here, uh, when they reached down the net and dipped it in the water to pick up some, some Russian conversations, they found out that they were talking to Americans. Um, that kind of thing makes this um, kind, of, kind of treacherous for reporters, uh, kind of treacherous for members of Congress, because they risk um, being accused of divulging classified or at least um, information that people have an interest in keeping secret about methods, about the extent of the eavesdropping on Russian communications. We're going to find out on purpose and by accident a lot of things about the way American intelligence agencies have been working both overseas and in the United States before this thing is over. Well, how, how, in your view, because you, you mentioned, you, in addition to elected officials, how should journalists prod in these uncharted waters? Um, it's tough. It's tough because there is a public interest, the public's right to know, the public's right to know whether or not a White House has uh, broken rules and taken risks that are hard to justify, but also there are people whose identities have to be protected. There are sources whose identities have to be protected. There are techniques and methods that uh, it is in the interest of the American government to make sure the public doesn't know about, but the public may want to know about. And caught in the uncomfortable middle between those desires and those laws are journalists who are groping their way forward saying, can I say this? Um, you know, contacting the legal counsel for their news organizations, saying, I have this, I think I have it pretty solid, but it's something that we're going to get in trouble if we report. Um, there's law, there's custom, and then there's um, even the impression that your news organization is willing to report on things that may reveal sources, techniques, and ideas, along with information, that put people in jeopardy. It's a very, very touchy area of reporting. Because where, where does the public's right to know what the government is doing in its name trump the already existing laws that put a reporter in jeopardy if they report them? Uh, it, it is... It's not something where the rules are hard and fast and everybody knows what to do right off the bat. Ray Suarez, thank you for once again being on the public morality, sir. Always good to talk to you. That was Ray Suarez. Stay tuned as I talk with Dr. Michael O'Hanlon from the Brookings Institute about President Donald Trump's foreign policy successes. Uh, 
Welcome back. With the nation's attention largely focused on the dramatics surrounding the Trump administration, it may come as a surprise that some who may not be predisposed to support the president's overall policy agenda have found some hopeful signs in the president's foreign policy. That in itself may come as an even larger surprise given candidate Trump spent the majority of the campaign focused on domestic issues. When he did discuss foreign policy, it was what many foreign policy experts found to be muscular, void of requisite depth. To discuss the Trump foreign policy at roughly the five-month point is Dr. Michael O'Hanlon. Dr. O'Hanlon is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. He recently co-authored a piece along with David Gordon that is featured on the Brookings Institute website entitled, on foreign policy, Trump isn't a complete disaster. Michael Hanlon, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. You recently uh, co-authored a piece along with uh, David Gordon that's featured on the uh, Brookings Institute website entitled, On Foreign Policy, Trump isn't a complete disaster. Underneath the hyperbole of the title, uh, what, what has led you to those conclusions, sir? Right. Well, thank you. And the first thing I, I should say here quickly and I think many of your listeners would know this, but uh, I've still been brutally awakened to it in the years I've been writing op-eds. Newspapers choose the titles right. of op-eds, and they rarely even let you see the title before it runs. And every so often it does a grave injustice to your argument. In this case, I thought it was an okay title, but it wasn't the one I would have chosen. I, uh, I, I originally uh, suggested to my co-author and then to the Washington Post that we call the piece Lighten Up a Little Bit on right. Trump. And the little bit was in parentheses. So trying to be a little bit less hyperbolic. But but still, I think what the title did convey was that we were certainly not trying to be friendly to Trump. And we certainly don't like his style as president. And we do think that he comes close to making bad decisions quite often and that he has the potential to still make them. So, you know, there were a number of swipes at the president in the course of our article. But we also said, if you look at the bottom line of how major decisions are turning out so far, it's worth acknowledging that most of them have been at least acceptable or reasonable uh, or not that dramatically different from uh, the decisions of Mr. Trump's predecessors. And that was essentially the essence of our argument. How much of foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy, uh, is shaped by perceptions and, and, uh, and narrative as opposed to actual public policy? That's an excellent question. Uh, There are places where the narrative is hugely important, and, you know, there are a lot of dimensions to your question, but let me just take one, which is in the broader Islamic world, we know that we've been unpopular for a long time, and that has created a political environment in the broader Islamic world, especially the Arab world, where uh, groups that are extreme or even espouse violence can have a hearing, and that can then help produce some of the political sentiment That makes it possible for an al-Qaeda or an ISIS to arise and attract followers. So in that sense, anti-Americanism or a a certain narrative about the United States can certainly uh, really hurt our interests. And I think in the broader Middle East, frankly, almost all modern presidents have been unsuccessful at creating a more fair and positive impression of the United States among many of uh, the, the Arabs in particular, but also throughout the broader region. Uh, that we would like to have be a little more friendly towards us. Here in the United States, I think that when we fixate too much on these uh, debates about, you know, how bad the other side of the aisle is, we wind up distracting ourselves from an ability to make good public policy or to fairly ascertain the pros and cons of different candidates. So, for example, the Benghazi matter, which I thought was a very unfair treatment of a number of Obama administration officials by many Republicans, I thought that was a distraction, ultimately. Uh, in, a, in a narrow sense, it, would just, it was a distraction from what to do about Libya in the here and now, a country that still needs help. But most of what we were doing was fighting the battle about what happened in 2012. But also, I thought that it really tore down some fairly good American public servants who, whether you vote for them or not, whether you like them or not, uh, they didn't really deserve it, uh, starting with Hillary Clinton and Susan Rice and some others. And that's just a very specific example. I think these kinds of debates poison our politics. And one more thing, to the extent that a place like Brookings or a Democratic Party in Congress or some other place becomes just the anti-Trump wing of our political system, that means the White House is going to stop listening 
uh, because it's going to expect that vitriol will be all it gets. And I'd rather be part of a situation where we can contribute to President Trump rethinking some of his initial instincts and maybe improving his policies rather than just engaging in political warfare all the time. Well, related to that, you know, uh, as you well know, in the campaign trail, um, for lack of a better term, that uh, President Trump, uh, candidate Trump offered what I would consider a muscular foreign policy that offered just enough specific for his followers to to conveniently fill in the blanks to how that narrative uh, should, should play out. My question to you, sir, how important is it for the United States to offer a clear foreign policy vision uh, that uh, for in order for our allies uh, to be comfortable, or are we past that point? Well, I guess you, you raise a great question again, and uh, I would always prefer some degree of clarity. On the other hand, the clarity of candidate Trump I did not like, and I thought that message which was partly an anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, anti-trade, anti-alliance message. I didn't want that message to be clarified and strengthened and simplified and emphasized. I wanted uh, President-elect Trump and then President Trump to rethink it and to move away from it. And so in the short term, because he wasn't going to wake up one day and go on TV and admit that he had been wrong all along about his previous views, in the short term, the best you could hope for was some degree of confusion that there be, you know, sort of a gradual walking away from some of the earlier positions. And over time, people would forget a little bit about exactly what he had said or be talking about it less. And therefore, he could, in fact, shift and now start pledging commitment to the NATO alliance, to Japan and Korea. Talk about improving NAFTA instead of just discarding it. Talk about specific, you know, stern measures towards China instead of an across-the-board 45% tariff. And so... If you had asked him on the first day he was in office to just to clarify his vision, I think that would have actually done more harm than good because he would have been more inclined to entrench himself in mistaken views that he had had as candidate. And what we're seeing now is a gradual education of President Trump. He's still not my cup of tea, to use the phrase that we also employed in the op-ed, and I still can't imagine supporting him politically at any point. But I'd rather still see him have a certain measure of success because he's our only president and we don't have a parliamentary system where we can, you know, vote him out of office with a vote of no confidence halfway through his term. So that's where I boil down my view that it's better to have a little bit of confusion than to have clarity on the wrong ideas or wrong vision for the country. Uh, in fact, you noted in your piece, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, that um, you, you gave him um, some some praise for his national security team in, in that they have walked back some of the more controversial positions of candidate Trump. That's right. And by the way, this team, you know, H.R. McMaster is National Security Advisor, Jim Mattis is Secretary of Defense, John Kelly at Homeland Security, uh, Rex Tillerson, Nikki Haley. I think it's a very good team. And part of, you know, the purpose of the op-ed in, in our own very limited, small way was to encourage these people on. I mean, they've got to be working really hard. They're dealing with some um, fairly extreme political voices like Steve Bannon in the White House, uh, they're trying to, you know, help educate uh, and inform uh, a president who didn't know a lot about foreign policy coming in. And, uh, you know, I sort of wanted to say, I think Dave wanted to say in our op-ed that, you know, they're doing a good job. And it's never going to be pretty when you're dealing with a maverick populist president like Donald Trump, who hasn't had a lot of experience in foreign policy, and you're trying to bring him perhaps to at least some traditional positions, even as you're, you know, serving him ultimately, and he's ultimately going to make the calls, but you're trying to have him understand the consequences of what some of his initial instincts, you know, if translated into policy, might might produce. These people are working really hard to be loyal to Donald Trump, but also be loyal to the United States and their views of what a good foreign policy would, would be. And uh, I'd like them to feel a little bit encouraged. By contrast, I'd seen some op-eds re uh, recently where people suggested they should step down rather than you know, uh, somehow taint their own personal credibility. I thought those op-eds were wrong because this country needs the H.R. McMasters, John Kelly's, and Jim Mattis's to stay right where they are. Um, you mentioned this in your piece. Talk about um, a couple of those decisions as they, uh, present decisions as they relate to um, North Korea and China. Well, on North Korea, as you know, this is a country that's tested nuclear weapons, uh, I think, five times, four times on President Obama's watch, and uh, one time during President Bush's tenure. 
and has been testing ballistic missiles more than monthly for the last couple of years. Is run by a young man, Kim Jong-un, who has assassinated some of his own close advisors when he didn't think they were paying enough attention to him or and otherwise. His brother. Sick of, yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah, his uncle, right. I mean, his uncle, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, um, and that worries me a lot because, you know, whether his uncle was a nice guy or not is not my immediate concern. But if he's killing off people in his inner circle who have different views and who are willing to dissent from him, that means that he's going to encourage groupthink. And therefore, he could get the wrong idea about some gamble he can take on the international stage, and he could conceivably produce war out of that kind of bad decision. It's happened plenty of times in history. I think it could happen again. So with North Korea, you've got a real bad problem. But you don't really have an option for good uh, military preemption because, let's say, for example, we wanted to destroy all their nuclear weapons. They probably have 15 or 20. We don't know where they are. We do know where at least some of their nuclear production capability is but we don't know where other facilities are. So at best, you could probably take out, you know, uh, half of their future production capacity and probably none of their existing arsenal of nuclear weapons. And then what are they going to do? There's a very high chance of retaliation. So I think the right way to handle North Korea is to try to squeeze them economically, which means you've got to work with China because China has most of the trade and investment with North Korea that's still ongoing in today's world. So that leads me back to why I think President Trump handled President Xi of China pretty well. He created the sense that there needs to be something done about this very serious North Korea threat, and he'd rather not use military force, and therefore, President Xi, can't you help us a little more than you have previously at trying to, you know, if you can't talk some sense into the North Koreans because they won't even listen to you, can you at least squeeze them a little bit economically anytime they do something extreme like a nuclear weapons test? So I think, in other words, he's wound up with essentially the right kind of approach towards North Korea, not because it's guaranteed to work, but because all the other approaches, all the alternatives are worse and more dangerous. And I'm glad to see President Trump, you know, get to that point in his thinking after a fairly short time in office. It, it seems to me, I'm speaking specifically about China, that, and you would know better than I being in Washington, D.C., but too many of our elected officials in Washington talk about China with what I define, my words, um, naive certainty, with, with little regard for the complexity of, of nuance. I was wondering how you saw that. Well, that's a great point, yeah, because the Chinese, obviously, it's an autocratic system. It still calls itself a communist government, but they're certainly not the communist government of yesteryear, uh, and they allow for a lot more dissent and freedom of expression, even though it's not as much as we would like in the West. They have a lot more economic opportunity, and they've had huge economic progress, even though they don't have the standard of living we have here, and they have polluted the, you know, the, the, the dickens out of their environment along the way and can't really sustain that kind of approach without some big reforms. In other words, they are literally a developing country in every sense of the word, politically, in human rights terms, uh, economically, environmentally. And uh, I hope that they will continue to want to improve, to stay on that path of remarkable progress, but certainly a path that's nowhere near where they want it to get. And at the same time, they're flexing their muscles a little. You know, they produce more steel than anybody else. They're one of the top three shipbuilders in the world. They're the top vehicle manufacturer. It's fairly normal that a country like that's going to have a bit of a military buildup. And so to me, I'm not surprised to see them strengthen themselves a little bit, flex their muscles a little bit. Um, but I just don't want to see them do things that are particularly dangerous. So that leaves us in this, you know, middle ground position, getting to your point that we have to avoid oversimplified, you know, extreme uh, naive certitude in our policy thinking. We have to push back against them in a number of areas, from the environment to the South China Sea, uh, from environmental policy to military policy, but we don't want to fight them, and we shouldn't assume that they're either irrational or evil. I think they are developing. And so uh, that's why I think having a China policy where you establish an ability to push back and to voice your own demands, but also where you take a workmanlike approach and try to solve problems wherever possible cooperatively, that's the right basic instinct. And ironically, or surprisingly somewhat to me, President Trump seems to be figuring that out pretty fast, and he's becoming more like the presidents that preceded him of both political parties, going back to Nixon, all of whom tried to work with China at some level because they recognized this dilemma that you got at when you said we have to avoid naive certainty. 
And so even if some of the political rhetoric about China is extreme and naively simplistic and, and overconfident, American presidents since Nixon have tended to go for this middle course, which I think is the right way to go, and it seems like that's where Trump is headed. Do the president's uh, tweets, I'm speaking specifically in the aftermath of the recent uh, Leonard attack, do, do those undermine the positive aspects that you cite in your piece? Yes, they certainly do undermine it. I hope they don't obliterate the positive side altogether, but I think the tweets are counterproductive. If he's going to tweet, I would suggest that he stick to American domestic politics. You know, he does like uh, an ability to reach his base and feels that it's part of his voice as a politician. And, you know, he's uh, he's got more Twitter followers than I do. I should acknowledge he's he's figured out something here. And uh, maybe it's not realistic or even necessary that he give it up entirely. But I just don't see why you want to get into tweets about sensitive foreign policy matters, especially when you're showing such insensitivity to a people that's just taken a body blow like the British had uh, 10 days ago in London. And so I really thought that, frankly, what he did was not only ill-advised, but fairly reprehensible and, uh, you know, just counterproductive at, at any level. So uh, that kind of stuff, I think he ought to just find a better way at disciplining himself, even if he does feel the need. And perhaps I should acknowledge there's some utility or some justification for him using uh, Twitter to reach out to his domestic followers on more, you know, normally kind of political matters. Uh, does those types of tweets that travel internationally, is that fodder, a potential fodder for ISIS? Yeah, they certainly have used things like that in the past, and not just from Trump. You know, if we if we accidentally bomb a wedding party in Pakistan or if one of our troops, uh, you know, does something wrong um, because occasionally, you know, we make a mistake – or if some preacher in Florida decides he wants to burn the Koran or whatever, uh, there's no doubt that historically ISIS and al-Qaeda have used those incidents and used social media to spread the word and then to portray American foreign policy and Americans in general as disrespectful of Islam and as disrespectful of Muslim life. And so certainly Trump's tweets are going to fit into that pattern and already have fit into that pattern. You could argue that they're actually in some ways, you know, less bad than the specific things I just mentioned, uh, but they certainly don't help, and I don't see why we would want to contribute, you know, to anything ISIS wants to do by way of propaganda or or recruiting. So, uh, yeah, one more reason why insensitive tweets, especially at the expense of Muslims, are just not a good idea. Dr. Michael Hanlon, Brooklyn Institute, thank you so much, sir, for joining us on the Public Morality Day. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Michael O'Hanlon of the Brookings Institute. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. for my closing remarks. Dear Democratic Party, how are you faring on the island of the political inconsequential? I know it's lonely. You're frustrated by having won the popular vote four out of five presidential elections this century, only to have two victories to show for your efforts. But politics is the ultimate cyclical enterprise. I have no doubt you will return to prominence. The question remains when... And how soon? The answer is entirely up to you. You can't pursue, however, the fool's goal of immediate gratification. That risks making you look peevish, succumb by insularity. To perceive blood in the water of a weakened president has seemingly bolstered your outlook. Representative Al Green wasted no time giving a speech on the House floor with no one in attendance demanding for impeachment proceedings. Many of your faithful raced to their respective social media outlets with youthful exuberance to post Green's words, which were as meaningful as a 50% off sale for manual typewriters. How can you call for impeachment without facts? Granted, 
The recent testimony by former FBI Director James Comey could suggest the president could have obstructed justice, but the operative words continue to be could have. That is circumstantial. Moreover, the political makeup of Congress suggests that without the proverbial smoking gun, impeachment is nothing more than a fanciful notion. You want to know why you lost last year? First, pick up a mirror. Then go to those who voted in 2008 and 2012, but did not vote in 2016. It would have only required a total of 77,000 votes in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania to have produced a different outcome. Meanwhile, you have some heavy lifting to do, internally as well as externally. Get rid of those so-called superdelegates. It's an undemocratic way to choose a presidential nominee. Go into the hinterlands and make your case to the legions that have joined the apathetic party. You must establish a raison d'etre that is more persuasive than, at least I'm not as bad as the other guy. Remember, it's not the president's boorish behavior, late-night tweets, or his seemingly disinterest in authentically governing that has you exiled. But I suspect you already know the latter point to be true. Moreover, isn't what's best for the country to have two strong political parties rather than be set with one that cannot win and another that cannot govern? No one ever said the path toward the more perfect union would be easy. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh-huh.